Father, there are so many times in which the busyness and the heaviness of life can just sort of overwhelm our hearts. Things, Father, can sort of push you out, but we come right now to open your word, your revealed word, so that we can see you in all your glory, so that the Spirit can move within our hearts to change us, so that we can see the glories of Christ and the benefits of him dying in our place upon the cross, so that good news of the gospel can not only transform the most vilest of sinners, but it continues to transform us into your Son on a day-by-day basis until one day we will stand transformed, glorified in your presence. Father, each one of us here is at a different place, and we ask that you can speak to us individually this morning. For I just bring the words that I think that needs to be said, but your Spirit can take those words and to energize them, to not only give, give us knowledge about your word and how we should live, but also that we can continue to become more like your son. And so we ask that you can move in great and mighty ways. Father, be with George at this time so that he can minister to his brother in this um, emergency situation. And so be with him right now and guide him, him and his thoughts in his words. So, Father, thank you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 42. And as you turn there, I just want to tell you a very short story about when I was at, um, when I attended Moody Bible Institute for a year, and we were required to go to the Founders Week conference, sort of like a pastor's conference, but for those who wanted to attend. And it was interesting, for one of the speakers came and he, he started talking about introducing himself and we opened with the word of prayer. And he began his message by saying, point three. And so I have the ability to sort of tune people out at, at times and I thought I missed something. So I'm looking around, point three, thinking, what, did I miss the other two points? So I. The person that I was next with, uh, next to, I said, what were the first, what were the other points? I think I missed it. And it seems like he just picked up where he left off last time in which he was there. Some previous uh, conference and some previous message, he just picked up where he, where he left off. All right, I got point three. Whatever the other two points, that's all right. But this morning, we're almost going to pick up where we left off last week with uh, the life of Joseph as he confronts his brothers. Because this message really sort of uh, piggybacks off of what we talked about last time. And we're in Genesis chapter 42, in which we are in the last Toledot of the life of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob's life, even though Joseph seems to be in the forefront, it's really about God working in the life of Jacob. And so in Genesis chapter 42, we're going to come face to face with his brothers, the ones who sold them into slavery. And as we begin to approach this one section, I said last week that commentators are really all over the map on how they sort of handled this one passage. And I'm even, uh, I'm very much indebted to Bodhi Bakum in his commentary on, 
on Joseph to help give me understanding on how Moses sort of put this passage together for us to understand. And he basically has um, looks at things and said that there are seven tests in which Joseph is going to confront his brothers to test them to see where they are. Where are they? Have they changed over the 20-year period in which he has last seen them? In which they hated him, they despised him, they were going to kill him, but yet they go to sell him into slavery. Have they changed at all? Are they the same men who placed him into the pit as he cries out for help? But more importantly, he wants to find out where they are spiritually. Has God gotten a hold of one of them, any of them? They're supposed to be followers of the God of Abraham and Isaac and their father Jacob. Has their lives been transformed in any way to have a true faith? Are they different? And so their answers to the test in which he's about to give to them will dictate his response and how he's going to respond to them when he reveals himself. For Joseph intentionally disguises himself not to give any kind of uh, implication that he's related to them in, in any way, excuse me. And so he's going to test them. And this is not just a test for the brothers, but it is also a test for us. Because we said last time in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Paul says that we're to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Examine ourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? For many people, they sort of lean on to um, the aspect that I'm a Christian, but how do you know? Where is your life in comparison to the profession that one makes? And so Paul calls us to test ourselves. What is the fruit? What is the result of the profession that one makes? And so Paul has the same aspect about testing. And the entire epistle of 1 John is a book of tests to see if one tests through it to see if, they're, um, if they have a faulty faith or a genuine faith. And so we said that last time. This is a test for Joseph's brothers. It's also an opportunity for us to see the work of the Holy Spirit work in the lives of Joseph's brothers in convicting them for where, where they are through their conscience. And throughout this passage, as we said last week, the uh, Jacob boys' conscience are screaming that things are wrong, that they are guilty. The Holy Spirit is working in their lives to show them through their conscience that their lives are full of sin. And we said last time that the conscience is just a God-given mechanism to show a person what is right and what is wrong. Though we can sear our conscience, we can make our conscience callous to those things, to lessen those things, we all have a conscience which condemns a person, which gives them feeling of shame and guilt, sometimes anguish, sometimes anxiety, sometimes even fear. But when we uh, affirm our conscience, um, doing things that are right, doing things that are godly, that are proper, it can bring a person joy and peacefulness, a sense of well-being and gladness. And so the Holy Spirit's going to be at work 
throughout this one passage. And we're going to see that convicting work of the Spirit. So as we looked at last time, Joseph is testing his brother, and we looked at that first test. The first test was, is Benjamin alive? Joseph recognizes his brother. He would not forget them at all because they basically looked look the same, but they were the ones who put him into the place where he was. And he needed to know, is Benjamin still alive? Or did they kill him like um, they wanted to with, with himself? Or did they treat him the way that they were treating him? He is now in the crosshairs because he is the fav now the favorite son of the favorite wife. So he needed to know because there are ten brothers there and one is missing. Where is Benjamin? Where is his brother? And he needed to find out. So he's going to test him. Is Benjamin alive? And if you look at verse 8, he recognized his brothers, although they did, not, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams in which he had about them. This was a subtle reminder of Joseph's faith that God was in this, that they would be bowing down because they are there because of how severe the famine is. That the only place to get food was Egypt. So you either gotten food or your family completely dies. There was no other food available anywhere except Egypt. And so, Jesus, um, so Joseph sees his brothers, recognizes them, sees there are only ten of them, and wonders where is Benjamin. And so... Did they do to Benjamin what they did to him? And so he treats them harshly to where he says, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. So he speaks to them harshly. And this harshness is going to haunt them for the rest of their time for the next number of chapters. He says that they are spies, that there are 10 of you, that you are here. And they said, no, we're just, uh, we're just your humble servants. We are, in verse 11, we are all sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants and are not spies. One of the things about the Jacob boys that we saw, they were everything under the sun but honest. You know, they, they were deceivers. They lied to their father about Joseph's situations. Their hearts were full of hatred and uh, murderous intentions. They were mass murderers. They were uh, immoral. So there was, there was nothing there to write home about that these were a pinnacle of men. But in relationship to Egypt, they haven't done anything wrong to Egypt yet. And so they were honest in that way, but in, in, in overall in their lives, they're saying they're honest, but Joseph's no, yeah, that's not them at all. And so that's where we saw last time, the first test. And um, Joseph needed to know, was his brother still alive? With the spiritual principle, do the sins of their past continue to define who they are, or has God changed them? And so we come in verse 16 to test number two. Will someone volunteer to go? 
So is, is Benjamin still alive? Test number two, will someone volunteer to go? Look at verse 16 as we see this, this test that Joseph gives them get played out. Verse 16, send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. And so Joseph tells him right up front, I am testing you to see whether or not you are honest men, whether or not you are spies and the words that you say are true. I am testing you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Joseph here is looking at his brothers and wondering which one of them is essentially the leader of the group. One of them is going to be firstborn, get the blessings of being firstborn. One of them should be standing out. Reuben would be the most likely candidate, for he was the eldest son, but he just committed that sin with his father's concubine and slept with her and got disinherited. And so which one of them would be the leader of the group? Secondly, is one of them the ones in which the brothers will entrust him with the task. Because when you look at the brothers, they essentially are not going to be trusting each other. Do the brothers actually trust another brother to sort of go and return? And so at the heart of this matter, Joseph was trying to discern whether his brothers have changed in regards to their feelings towards one another whether or not they loved the brothers, whether or not they would sacrifice themselves for the sake of the brothers. And so will someone place their own concerns aside and travel all the way back that difficult way and return with Benjamin? Will someone volunteer to go? And so the spiritual, uh, spiritual principle here that Joseph is trying to discern is have any of them learned to love the brothers? Because loving the brothers was not really something that they had done previously when Joseph knew them. But Joseph wanted to see, have they changed at all? Was their affections towards one, one another conditional? For they were conditional with him. You know, Joseph was um, lifted up to be the pinnacle of the family, entrusted with um, carrying out the deeds of the father. But they did their own thing, and Joseph told, told his father a bad report, and they just despised Joseph all the more. And then these dreams, these dreams about them bowing down, and they said they were never bowed down to him. So have they learned to love the brothers? Have they learned, because there were God-chosen people, to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others? There's a verse that I want you to look at. Um, it's going to be on the screen, John 13, in verse 35. Because loving one another is really the hallmark of a, of a sign of a walk of faith. You don't have to sort of be, just look at the New Testament to see this. It should be a natural fruit, even in the Old Testament. Even our Lord said in John 13, By this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another having concern, having, uh, putting other people first is paramount in the life of God's people. 
And so it is a hallmark sign of a walk of faith, of a genuineness. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15 says the, the same thing. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John goes on to say that you have to love one another. Love is the hallmark. And as he looks at his brothers, he's trying to discern that very fact. Is any of them willing to go sacrifice um, their own um, desires for the sake of others? Will someone make that difficult trip back and, and return with Benjamin? And if someone volunteers to go, will the others trust him that he would actually return? Because trustworthiness is not necessarily a part of their own lives. And so will someone volunteer to go? And they have three days to think about it. Look at verse uh, 17. So he put them all together in prison for three days. It's interesting to note because they're now in Pharaoh's prison, which is probably the same place where Joseph was imprisoned after Potiphar's situation. And so they're in prison, and they're probably in solitary confi con confinement. They're together, but normally if you're thinking that there are ten spies amongst you, you're not going to sort of put them in all one cell. They're probably in their own individual cells. And so if you are in solitary confinement, there is nothing to do except stare at the wall. And this happens for three days with nothing to do. Life has stopped. Things are quiet. And if they were accused of being spies, normally you kill spies later on. And so all of this is going through their heads. And this is, a, this is actually a work of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts to convict them of their sin during the three days. It's sort of implied there. Because what do you do in, in, in prison? Nothing but think and think and wonder. And so they're staring at the wall under harsh conditions, probably in chains because Joseph wasn't changed. And the Holy Spirit is there convicting them. The hound of heaven is once again nipping at their heels, calling them to repent, showing them their sin, calling them to faith. It's interesting because you may not know the term the hound of heaven, but it was used by the Puritans and it was made famous in the 182-line poem written by Francis Thomas because it describes God's relentless pursuit of man. Let me just read one commentator's um, aspect about this one poem. He says this, as the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing near in the chase, with unhurrying and steady pace, so does God follow the fleeting soul by his divine grace. And, through, and though in sin or in human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself. God's grace follows after, unwearingly follows ever after, Till the soul feel this pressure forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. This one aspect 
is in the forefront. The hound of heaven is there chasing the brothers, convicting them of their sin. Because for 20 years they've been living with this private sin. Not talking about it, not talking about Egypt. The brothers um, wanted Joseph and his situation from the furthest of their minds. The sleepless nights, the stirring in the heart, the restlessness over those 20 years, the cries of Joseph crying out in the pit, as we shall see in a moment, in the middle of the night, would probably haunt them. And the Holy Spirit is now having them in prison, convicting them of their sin, remembering of the situation. And yet, after the three days, no one volunteers. They fail the test. Look at verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, now let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. And as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Here we have the third test. The first test, um, is Benjamin alive? And it looks like he's not alive, he's not with them. The second test, will someone volunteer to go? No one volunteers to go. And the third test, will someone volunteer to stay? Let one of your brothers be confined. Will one of them volunteer? If they are changed, someone will volunteer. If one of them God has gotten hold of and changed their life and changed their perspective, they would sacrifice themselves for the love of their other brothers, for the freedom of their other brothers, that they would sacrifice themselves for the food to go back so their families could be fed and not starve. Would one of them volunteer to stay? No one volunteers to stay. And so Joseph is now going to force their hand. Look down at verse 21. Well, yeah, look, um, look at verse 21. And they said to one another, we, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother. Joseph is there. They think that they don't understand what is going on. They're finally, after three days, brought back together. And they're talking about their situation in Hebrew. And they think Joseph is not understanding the situation. And they say, we are truly guilty. I have that one word circled in my Bible. For this is the first time they acknowledge their sin in what they had done. The hound of heaven's activity is at work producing its fruit. They're saying we are guilty of what we had done to our brother. Because we saw his soul in distress when he pleaded with us. That one aspect is not found in chapter 37. It just says that they did that and they moved on, but they don't, um, but here we find out a little more detail. 
His soul was in distress. He was crying out. He was pleading for his life. And what did they do? They had lunch. They put it aside. Their deed was done. They saw the caravan coming, and they said, please pass the ketchup. They, they were not moved by it. We saw his soul in distress. He pleaded to let him out, yet they would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. This bad situation that we now face is there because the day of reckoning has come. They had the attitude of what goes around comes around, and they feel the heavy weight of guilt. And they're saying it's now payback time. Look at verse 22. Reuben answered to, to, to them saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Reuben has that little selected memory there going on that um, because he didn't want, he came up with a better plan that when his brothers left, he was going to get Joseph out of the pit, present him to the father, and get the blessings of, back on him for being firstborn, that he would save him from the torturous situation in which Joseph found himself. But his brother decided to sell him into slavery instead, and he wasn't there. And so he sort of, with his selective memory, did I not tell you not to do this? Well, he had the wrong intentions from the get-go. And so they all were feeling guilty. It's, it's interesting because I like this quote from Alistair Begg. He says, the first sign of an awakening conscience is the admission of personal guilt. The Holy Spirit is at work. And the first sign of an awakening conscience is the admission of personal guilt. It's very easy for people to sort of justify their actions away, to justify their sins away, to begin to blame other people for the situations that they find themselves in. But when the hound of heaven is at work, and the fruit of that work is there, is the admission of personal guilt. And the Jacob boys have done everything in their power to suppress that guilt. Because even during the entire 20 years, none of them, not one of them, confessed to the father, Joseph could still be alive. They lived with that lie. And the father mourned for 20 years. But this is the first time where we get them to see the extent of their own guilt. Look at verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them, and he turned away from them and wept. Joseph hears this situation by his brothers. He feels the pain because it's like re getting relived in his own mind, and he has to turn away from them, probably goes to a different part of the room, and he weeps in private. But it's more than just a pain because a pain of a tragic situation doesn't magically disappear. It can return in its full force. The difference with Joseph is 
He, he is getting to the place where he forgives them. And we'll look at, at that um, in the um, up and coming chapters. But the pain of it, it's still there. But it's more than that. It's more than just the pain of the entire situation getting relived in his mind. He knows that his brothers failed the tests. Is Benjamin alive at this point? No. It seems like he's not alive. Will someone volunteer to go? No, nobody volunteers to go. Will someone volunteer to stay? No one volunteers to stay. He realizes that they haven't changed one bit. In the 20 years, with all that guilt within them, they're still the same dirty, rotten scoundrels as they were before. Because if they've changed, one of them would have sacrificed themselves and volunteered to stay. But look at the next verse. But when he returned to them and spoke, he took Simon from them and bound him before their eyes. And so he forces the hand, all right? No one volunteers to go. No one vol volunteers to stay. I'm going to choose one. I'm going to choose Simon, and he's going to stay instead until you return the brother to me. And so test number four, will someone return for Simon? He tells them, bring me your brother, or Simon will stay in prison. Those are the choices. And as we are going to see, will somebody return for Simon? No. They fail that test too. When they get back home, nobody returns to back to the situation until the food runs out, until they were hungry again, until the aspect of starvation is before their eyes, will they return back? Nobody returns back for Simon. They fail the test. They would rather leave him in prison than return. And so do the sins of their past characterize them in the present? Joseph says, yeah. They're the same scoundrels as they were before. Do they love the brethren that they will sacrifice for them? No, they won't. They're still as self-centered as they were before. They haven't changed. And so in verses 25 and following, we find the next section. They leave and... Joseph's brothers will return home. And here we find the fifth test, which will show that the brothers have a faulty faith. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. And so the fifth test is, is going to be, will they return the money? Joseph gives them the grain. Joseph even gives them provisions for them to eat along the way, which is Joseph showing them grace. Grace is the favor of something that is not deserved. Joseph's brothers don't deserve anything. But Joseph gives them food for the, for the trip home. And so in verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened his sacks to give his donkey fodder, to give the donkeys some food to eat at the lodging place, he saw his money. 
and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and then they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And so their hearts sank. Another way to translate that is their heart failed. Their heart just has fallen out. Why? Because the Egyptians are going to think they stole the money. And Joseph's test here is that will they return the money? Will they be to the place in which they saw the money was still in their possession? Will they return it back? Because if they are viewed to have stolen the money, how will they ever get Simon out of jail? Never. If they are viewed as thieves, they'll never get Simon out of jail. And then they cry out, what is this that God has done to us? And they turn trembling to one another. Another way to translate that, they were driven to terror. They saw the seriousness of their situation, and they go, uh-oh, what are we going to do now? And so the spiritual principle here is that when no one is looking, do you still do the right thing? This test looks at how the brothers will respond when faced to a moral dilemma. How does one react to a situation where you either do the right thing or do you continue to do what you are doing? And so it goes into the heart of one's character. Do they still choose to sin, or do they return the money despite the cost that, as what had taken place? And so Joseph tests them. Will they return the money? Or will they let the greed within their hearts that he knows of still be a part of their lives? Because when it comes to money, people miss their money. And so the Egyptians would know that they didn't get paid for everything. And so when they come to return, they're not going to be as friendly as they were before. And so if they were changed, if any concern about getting Simeon out of prison, if they cared about being seen as thieves, they would have returned. But yet their heart filled with terror and said, what is this? God has done to us. It's interesting, in, in the lives of the Jacob boys, this is the first time they ever mentioned God. God was sort of far off. They were very religious. They saw themselves as, you know, children of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. They were God's chosen people, and yet their lives was far away. God was far from their own minds. And religious people always bring up God when, when times get difficult. But in times of pleasure, God is far from their minds. And so their conscience is screaming at them right now that this is a terrible situation, 
that they are guilty in their, with their sin and they have a moral choice to make. Do they go back or do they continue? But they don't return. They fail the test. They're by themselves and they choose to continue to return. Raises the question for us, doesn't it? When we're all by ourselves, what secret sins do we face and carry? When we are faced with a moral dilemma, what choices do we make? Do we do the right things, even if those things are in secret? It's easy just to sort of continue. For if you were ever at a grocery store and you realize there's an item that's now in my bag that's not on the list, do you go, oh, too bad for the store? Or do you say, excuse me, you forgot to charge me the $16.95 for that piece of steak, that small piece of steak, but that piece of steak that's on my list, and get them to pay for it? Or, or do you say, eh, too bad, he should have been more, more careful? We have moral choices all the time. What things do we do when no one is looking? What websites do we visit when it's just us and our computer? For many, they say, well, I'll just clean out my memory. Nobody would know. It's just nobody would know. But we forget. God knows. God knows exactly what you're doing, what you're seeing. What choices do we make? Where is our personal holiness when no one is around? That is at the forefront of this one test. Will they return the money? They don't. They fail the test. Now in verses 29 and 38, we find the next section of this one passage. Jacob responds to his sons. Look at verse 39. When they came to the father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that has happened to them, saying... And now in verses uh, uh, 30 and following, it's interesting because that's all Moses could have told us in the story. They tell Jacob everything that happened, and then we get Jacob's response. But we don't have that here. We get a blow-by-blow -blow situation of exactly what has taken place. And we said that last week. The reason why is because Moses wants his readers, Moses wants us to know that God is in this. So we have a repetition here of what is taking place. And the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us. And so he spoke harshly through the entire time, and it's going to haunt them. It, it, it's just, they just can't get that harshness out of their heads. And took us as spies. And we said to him, we're honest men. We're not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the, other, and the youngest is with him, our father, um, with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine for your household and go. It sort of left out the prison, but that's okay. It's sort of implied. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. And so here we have a description 
of what is, of what is going on in Joseph's life. And so Moses tells us, through a blow by, by blow, is that, uh, of what is taking place. Look at verse 6. Sorry, my notes were out of order again. So I, I apologize. Um, but we find this one test. In ver, um, the, the sixth test is, have they earned Jacob's trust? Have they earned, as they tell this story... And the result that they want to get Simon out, have they earned Jacob's trust? That is what Joseph is testing them. And the spiritual principle, as we're going to see here, is that have those closest to the brothers seen a change in their life? If the sons have been changed, if they are not the same people after the 20 years, they would be an outward acknowledgement that they are different people. And so the test number six is Joseph is testing what trust the father has towards the son. When Joseph first recognized their boys, he wonders two things about Benjamin. First, first was that did they do to him exactly what they have done to himself, or does, does Jacob not have Benjamin return because he just doesn't trust the brothers to keep Benjamin safe? to keep him from ill happening? Do they trust the brothers to return him? But he doesn't. He mistrusts them. Look at verse 35. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. So not just did the one brother have his money at the mouth of his sack. I mean, it was clearly seen. So you need to open it up. There it is. But now when they tell the father the story, they go to take the grain out. They all have the bundles of money in with their sacks. And so it tells Jacob that something is gravely wrong. Because it's one thing to have one brother have their money there. And maybe they just sort of forgot about it. But when you have all ten of them to have their money still in the sacks, Jacob is thinking, that is terrible. They are going to think we stole the grain and didn't pay for it. That's why the response in verse 36, their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me, my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Jacob sees how the Egyptians would view the money, that they have stolen it. You know, how are we going to get Simeon out at this point if you stole the money? It's as if he was dead. And now you want to take Benjamin down to the same place? He's going to be dead too. This is just terrible. Look at verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, You may put my two sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. These are very lofty words here coming from Reuben. You know, I will put up my two sons and if I don't return, you can kill them. 
Put him in my care, and I will return to you. If harm should befall me on the journey that you are taking, oh, uh, uh, verse 38, excuse me. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. So Reuben tries to make himself look good. He didn't say, you can kill me if I don't return. He says, you can kill my two sons. So, he, so the father doesn't trust him just by his, uh, his suggestion. And Jacob says, you know, my son shall not go with you for his brother. I view uh, Simeon in prison as dead. And the only son I have left is Benjamin. What a sad father Jacob is. There's t there's, he, has, he has 10 children in front of him. 11, excuse me. Uh, well, 10. And it's a sad place for him to be because what if you were Gad? What if you were Zebulun? How do they feel? What about Dan? What about being one of the brothers? How would you feel? I'm your son, but he doesn't respect them. I only have one son, and he's my favorite son. He's Benjamin, and he's not going anywhere. He would not win, Jacob would not win any father of the year contest. He's a terrible father because of his partiality. And so it's a sad state where we see Jacob in his walk with God, Jacob with him dealing with his family. Benjamin is from the wife that he loved. And if he had the possibility to choose, I, we, should, we should try to save Simeon or the possibility of something happen, happening to Benjamin, I'll choose Benjamin. And so I have two sons now dead, which he's basically uh, saying is that let Simeon rot in prison. I have Benjamin. That's a sad state to be. His walk with God right now is far away because he was the one that wrestled with God. He was the one that got a new name from God. He knows God. God spoke to him. But his heart's far away. He should have been like Abraham. When Abraham um, called to take Isaac to the mountain, kill him. The son that he waited all his life for. The son in which the promised seed would be coming through. Through him, he'll be uh, um, the descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea. He had faith in God, as we find out in Hebrews 11, that he would raise him from the dead. That's faith. Here, Jacob... <laughs> I'm not even having the possibility of something tragic happening to Benjamin. He's staying with me. I'm in control of his fate, not God. That's sad. It's really sad. He has no trusts, no trust in his son that they would act pro properly. Because if he did, Proverbs 23 and verse 24 says this, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. There's nothing that Jacob is glad with his sons. 
So much so, I got one son left. But this also brings us to the seventh test. Have they, earn, has, have they earned Benjamin's trust? Have the brothers earned the trust from Benjamin himself? This last test is sort of implied in things because this last test, Benjamin could have spoken out. Father, I will go. We got to get Simeon out. But he keeps quiet. He says nothing. He is hostage. No one will go down, for if something will happen to him, I will go down to shield. And so Benjamin has his 12 brothers there, probably for the last 20 years, that same hatred that was towards Joseph being the favored uh, child was now on him. And that, him, that uh, despisement, that hatred kept coming out because he was the favored one and they weren't. And so the Jacob boys fail the test. They did not earn Benjamin's trust for he did not volunteer. Is Benjamin alive? To Joseph, we don't know at this point. Test number two, will someone volunteer to go? No one volunteers to go. Test three, will someone volunteer to stay? No one volunteers to stay. Test four, will someone return for Simeon? Nobody returns for Simeon. Will they return the money? Test five, no one returns the money. Test six, have they earned Jacob's trust? The father does not trust them at all. And then test number seven, have they earned Benjamin's trust? They have not earned Benjamin's trust at all. It's a sad place in the family of Jacob at this time. There seems to be no hope within them. Because the Jacob boys have failed the test. Because the sins of their past do characterize where they are. They have not changed. God has not gotten hold of not even one of them. They're the same. Do they love the brethren? No, they don't love the brethren. They don't sacrifice their, um, in, um, their priorities at all. How do they act given a moral dilemma? They don't return the money for the sake of of Simeon? Have the ones closest to them seen a change? No. Jacob doesn't trust his sons. And Benjamin, they, they don't trust his brothers. And so it's a very sad state of affairs that we find for them. For them, God is far from the picture. Jacob, who's, who does walk with God, is far away from God. Jacob doesn't trust his sons. There is no leader amongst the brothers. They lack any kind of integrity at all. But yet the story does not end here. There's eight more chapters left. The hound of heaven isn't finished yet. He has not completed his work. But we get to see that the brothers fail the test. But in the next two chapters, one will arise to pass the seventh test. 
there will be one who will take responsibility and become firstborn of the family. They will pass the tests. But that sort of comes to where we are at right now in the few moments that we have left. Where are we in the test that we have when we test ourselves to see whether or not we are and our faith is excuse me, genuine? Are we like Joseph's brothers where we think we're walking with God, but God is far from us? We look religious on the outside, but there's no inward change at all. Are we like Jacob? God is just currently far from us. We care about God, but there's no current fruit that is going on. Or are we like Joseph? He's walking faithfully for God in the land of his affliction. He hates being there, but he's faithful with the purposes that God has given to him. So those same questions and same test comes to us. Have you been transformed by God or do the sins of your past characterize your present? Are you, have you been changed? Do you love the brethren? Many times we say, well, I love the church, but there's just some people I don't get along with. That's... People in the church are the body of Christ. He died for them. We are to love the brethren. We don't have the option to pick and choose our family. We're all part of the family. People pick up their suitcases and go somewhere else and try to find the best place somewhere else. But they don't develop a heart of love because their love is conditional. If you believe exactly how I do, you're in. If, you, if you're nice to me, you're in. But that's not what God has called us. We're to love the brethren. Do we exhibit godly character when nobody is looking, when we are all by ourselves? Do we have that same fervency to uh, relinquish sin, that we don't want sin even a part of us, because it doesn't conform us to Christ. We feel the weight of sin in our life if we begin to dabble with that sin. And so even when we're by ourselves, do we continue to exhibit godly character? Have we been transformed? Or are we like Joseph's brothers? But lastly... Do others around us acknowledge the change in our life? Can others see, yeah, he's growing, he's different, or you are different. So if you're a husband, husband, does your spouse see a change in your life to where there's a desire to be godly, that there's a difference in how you speak, there's a difference in how you act, there's a difference in how you, um, how you um, react to situations? Or is it the same old you? If you're a wife, is there a difference there in how you act towards your husband? If you're, if you're a child in the family, can your parents see a change in your life? Or are you just living off the coattails of their faith to where you come to church and you go home in church, but yet when you're home, you're all the same? Is there a difference? 
Can people see a growth? Is your faith genuine? Examine yourself to see if you're a faith. How do you know? But the situation is not hopeless. Because when we see our sin, we see how hopeless we are, but there's the cross of Christ. We can cling to his accomplishments because we can't earn our faith. There's nothing that we can do to lessen our situation, but we cling to what Christ had done on the cross because he was our substitute. He took our place. He was the one in which I received his righteousness. So God sees us as if we have never sinned and we are declared righteous. It's all of God, and God gets all the credit for God's glory. And so that's where we are, because that's where the tests are. But when we come back to look at the following chapters, there is a spotlight of hope that comes because one will, will rise up within the family to redeem the family that is spiraling out of control. So let's pray. Father, so much more could be said. Time is far gone. But we thank you, Father, that no matter where we are, we have the opportunity to have that guilt and shame removed. For many of us, Father, though we have a right faith, we're just not living the right way. And so, Father, we give that to you, and we cling to the cross. For others, Father, we feel stifled because of the guilt and shame of past actions, which takes away and robs us of our assurance of faith. But yet, Father, we realize that you have bore all those sins, and we thank you, Father, that we are new creatures. But yet, Father, there may be even someone here who they do not know you, and they're living a life to some. It seems to be a, that there's a walk with you, but they feel the results of their life, and they know their life is a sham. Father, let them see their hopelessness and let them cling to the cross for what you have done for them. And so, Father, the hound of heaven could be nipping at each one of us. Thank you that each one of us can leave this place changed from the time that we have spent here. And we pray this in Jesus' name.